you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode, of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com, kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. From University of California, San Francisco Medical Center, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, the infectious disease specialist, he joins us today just as we have significant news about the first confirmed identification of a COVID-19 case of the Omicron variant, and it involves a San Franciscan who recently returned just over a week ago from South Africa, where the first uh, public identification of the Omicron variant was made. So good to have you with us, Dr. Peter Chen Hong. First of all, your thoughts about the first case being in your city. Well, Larry, it really reflects the close partnership between academia and public health because the sample was detected in uh, sequencing at a UCSF lab. And I think just all throughout the state, uh, what the public health has been doing is partnering with private as well as academic labs to undergo this gargantuan task. So the individual came from South Africa, as you said, November 22nd. Interestingly, none of the closest contacts have been positive so far, so we're crossing our fingers and holding tight. So that's good, just over a week ago. Um, so, uh, And was the person tested immediately upon arrival in the U.S.? I don't believe the patient was—I don't have the full details, but I don't believe the patient was— um, uh, asked to be tested, it may have been a voluntary testing because, you know, until this point, we haven't had, unlike other countries, uh, people coming from affected or, or adverse countries uh, tested on arrival. So I think that may be changing in some airports, including San Francisco. But so far, uh, at the time when this person arrived, there wasn't any uh, guideline around testing per se. And typically with a PCR COVID test, there isn't uh, the the deeper analysis to determine variant, is there? So how how did it happen that this individual, there was that uh, determination uh, that the person had Omicron? Well, you know, a lot of it is just by chance, because you're right, um, when you do a PCR test, only on average, about 2% of those are, you know, kept on for more detailed analysis, which is genomic sequencing. Um, but I think people were on the lookout. So I think um, the labs are just uh, doing the testing faster than, than usual. And I think that's how it was picked up. But, you know, we may 
this is just the tip of the iceberg because we're not testing a lot of um, at-home testing, for example. We're not doing uh, any quick analyses, but I think this may change with Omicron because you can get a quicker result from a, a screen PCR, which looks for a particular signature, without having to do whole genomic sequencing. Ah, okay. So just to make sure I understand, so you're saying you could use a home test to determine the variant? No, you can't use the home test, but uh, from a regular PCR test, uh, it's it's easy to figure out from the lab's perspective if it has a high suspicion to be Omicron or not without having to do the whole... uh, whole genomic sequencing. Okay. And so is there any thought that labs will start routinely doing this as part of tracking uh, cases of Omicron? I believe they will uh, because it's relatively easy to do because the the screening test is kind of a screening test. It just says yes, no in terms of high suspicion. And then you can confirm it with the more detailed test that takes a longer time to come back. Um, so, but that initial screen is what they did, for example, in the planes coming into the Netherlands from South Africa and in some parts of Europe where they can get a very rapid answer. And what's your suspicion, if any, you know, I know we're, we're just days into this, but, um, when we might have had the first cases of this, because now we have from Europe cases that apparently were there before South Africa identified it as a new variant. So what's the thought of when this this could have uh, mutated? Well, you know, again, it reflects the delay that we have in the world in general in recognizing variants. It's just that and South Africa is one of the best countries in terms of doing a lot of surveillance. And they weren't really driven by... Curiosity. What happened is that they saw a rapid increase in cases from hundreds to thousands, and they began to investigate. And all of the new cases, or many of the new cases, were clustered in this one province where Johannesburg is. And then they found this variant out. But by the time you find something, it's already spreading. The fact that uh, they found so many cases of Omicron when they went to investigate why so many cases were increasing. Uh, reflects the fact that it was undergoing community transmission long before you detect it. And, you know, if you try to trace back from when we know so far, it was probably in Botswana before South Africa. And Botswana doesn't have a lot of genomic sequencing available and probably in the southern corner of Africa in some of the other countries. Stephen LaCanyata tweets at AirTalk, what do we know about breakthrough Delta infections after a booster shot? Uh, yeah, we now have boosters that uh, have been out there for a few weeks. Dr. Chen Hong, do we, do we know how effective the boosters are proving to be? Uh, well, we do have um, randomized control data from Pfizer showing that in about, <clears throat> I think it was uh, 10,000 people, so it's a very large study, the efficacy of the booster in preventing uh, infection was uh, very much similar to the original vaccine efficacy, so around 91% uh, to 95%. So we believe that the booster will give you, it'll be like turning back the clock, basically, back to the good old days when vaccine efficacy was 95%. And and, uh, now are the boosters being closely followed to see when their protection begins to wane? Yes, everybody is on uh, high alert to look at the effect of the boosters, particularly given the Omicron uh, variant. 
you know, again, it has so many mutations. Uh, you know, Dr. Fauci says that we're not going to panic, which is true. But certainly if uh, boosted people started going to the hospital with Omicron, that might be a signal to really think about getting a booster with a variant. And uh, we heard that that could could take 100 days or longer. So that which is, of course, extremely fast to adapt a vaccine. But nonetheless, you, you could have a lot of people getting sick in the interim waiting for a redesigned booster. Yes, but although most people believe, myself included, that we probably won't get to that point, that's probably the worst case scenario. Um, we do believe that the vaccines will give you really great protection against serious disease, hospitalization and death, because it doesn't care what the spike protein looks like uh, when you think about how T cells work. Once the cell is infected with the virus inside the body, this T cell will just kick it out. So you'll never get, uh, or you have a very, very low probability of getting really sick. Is it possible also that um, that Omicron is more contagious, but not necessarily going to make people any sicker than the Delta variant? I think many people believe that. So far, we've gotten some information from South Africa that the symptoms that people had are very mild, uh, so tiredness, fatigue, body aches, headache, but no loss of taste and smell, no sore throat, uh, no shortness of breath. Uh, but they were young people who were getting Omicron that were reported. And South Africa has a much uh, younger population than the United States, as well as a population with fewer comorbidities and immunocompromised states, although they, they do have a large HIV population. But nevertheless, I think people are still sort of on guard, making sure that it will be okay in the U.S. With this first case in San Francisco, for example, that person had very mild symptoms. He was fully vaccinated. Um, and again, speaking to that, he probably didn't transmit it as much uh, with a lower viral load because none of his contacts were positive. Shirley in Manhattan Beach says, I've gotten the Moderna vaccine. I now want to get a booster. Would Johnson & Johnson be okay to mix as my booster? Well, uh, if you look at the mix and match study from the NIH, uh, if you got a Moderna followed by a J&J as a booster, you can increase your antibodies by about five times. Um, if you get a Moderna followed by a Moderna for booster, it's about 10 times and about eight times if you get a Pfizer. Meaning to say, you, with any of the three vaccines, you probably get a, a big boost in, uh, in antibody response. And you start off with Moderna, which is kind of higher than Pfizer. So that's why the numbers don't seem as dramatic because uh, that level is already higher than say the other two vaccines. Cheryl in Lincoln Heights says, how rigid is this six-month-long wait for a booster? I just had my 70, uh, 73rd birthday. I tried to get a booster, but they denied me because my most recent dose was in June. I would ideally like to get it before late December. That's Cheryl in Lincoln Heights. Dr. Chen Hong? Well, I think, you know, the difference between five and six months isn't really significant from a virus perspective. Uh, and Cheryl would probably get benefit at that point. The idea is just to give it a few months later rather than being uh, very strict about the cutoff. However, what she's facing is really a public health guidance. And, um, you know, and, and that's what it comes down to. 
you know, whether or not, um, you know, from a biologic perspective, I would support um, Cheryl getting that booster now because, again, it doesn't really matter five or six months. But whether or not the pharmacy or health system will give it to her will be another question. Yeah, uh, it's just one case. But in the pharmacy that I went to and I I got my booster the first day that uh, the CDC had recommended it, but they were quite vigilant. They weren't letting anyone who'd had an mRNA vaccine um, who had not gone at least six months get a booster. They were that was really the only thing that they were being strict about. You didn't have to say why you were getting or what made you eligible, but but they were not providing it for people with less than six months, unless it was a Johnson & Johnson. Um, so that would be the key is, you know, would you be able to find a place that, that would give it to you with less than six months since your second dose? Oh, Newell uh, emailed us, said he had a heart attack three weeks after having his first Pfizer injection, had a second blockage after second Pfizer, doesn't want to get a booster now. He's attributing the heart problems that he's had um, to getting vaccinated. But, um, Newell, if you're talking about a blockage, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Hong, doesn't that usually take significant time for a blockage to form? Yes, the pathophysiology of a blockage in general, and of course I'm always humbled by medicine, um, is, is different from inflammation. So I think with an mRNA vaccine, you'd be more likely to think about you know, inflammation of the heart muscle, like pericarditis or myocarditis, um, rather than uh, blockage, which is generally um, from, you know, plaque or cholesterol. Uh, There may be some, you know, vasospasm that you can get uh, sometimes that can cause that. But if it's a real blockage, it's unlikely to be due to a vaccine. And have there, we've of course talked about myocarditis as a very rare but but sometimes occurring side effect, particularly for for young men, um, have there been any instances of of heart attacks that are believed to be related to the vaccines? Not that I knew of. There've been speculation because, of course, with millions and millions of people getting vaccines, uh, you get things that you might have gotten just in regular life, and it just seemed to be associated with the timing of the vaccine, although not causative. So. So far, there's not really a great biologic reason for heart attacks, and um, so it's not really on the list of things that we worry about uh, officially, although, again, we always want to keep an open mind. So Newell's wondering where he could look up about this. Would the CDC's website have, at least from the clinical trials, the results of, uh, of all the different side effects associated with the vaccines? Yes, it's CDC. I mean, the, you know, mRNA vaccines, Pfizer, for example, has already undergone uh, FDA, a full FDA approval. So you can literally look up the package insert and it has typically a very, very detailed list of every single uh, uh, side effect that's been reported in the trials. Uh, and Dr. Chen Hong, uh, it sounds like the San Franciscans uh, symptoms were, were fairly mild from COVID. Is that right? Yes, uh, apparently the patient is recovering very uneventfully at home, self-quarantining, and um, again, speaks to the power of full vaccination, Um, didn't really um, both not get a lot of symptoms as well as not transmit it to other people. 
We're glad to hear that, that uh, the patient's doing well. Eric in Pomona tweets at AirTalk, international travel into the U.S. requires a negative COVID test. How did that test not detect the Omicron variant in this San Francisco patient? That's because until this is being reevaluated, currently you have a window period of 72 hours to have a negative test. That's enough time to have a window period where you can have a false negative if you're early in the incubation. And that's the reason why the Biden administration is now thinking about shortening that period of time from 72 hours to 24 hours. All right. Um, We have Wendy who emailed us. I heard Canada approved the pediatric vaccine at an eight-week interval, even though we're doing three-week intervals in the U.S. Can you tell us more about the pros and cons of the longer interval for children? Well, I think the longer interval is really based on the observation of, say, why Moderna might have performed better than Pfizer. Pfizer, of course, is three weeks between doses, Moderna four weeks between doses, and it seems to be holding up better. Of course, it could have been that the Moderna dose was a little bit higher than Pfizer to begin with. But many people believe the interval between the first two doses was was probably the, the reason. Uh, in the UK, we have evidence that uh, when you delay the vaccines uh, from you know three or four weeks to eight weeks or so, that that leads to a very robust immune response, and in some cases, even better. So that's kind of the background for many people thinking about a longer interval. But regardless, um, you know, we don't have knowledge in pediatrics whether or not that will work. I mean, there's biological b- basis to believe so. Um, so I think the official recommendation is still three weeks. However, if people delayed it, um, personally, I don't think there will be any uh, issue with that, except that if you want the kid to be uh, protected uh, faster, uh, you might want to think about the three weeks. Say you're traveling and you want full protection sooner, you might just want to stick with the three weeks rather than two months. Chuck in Temple City says, I understand for people who are fully vaccinated and boosted that um, it's rare for them to get uh, seriously ill with COVID. But even if someone gets a mild case with mild symptoms, is that person still susceptible to long COVID? That's a great question from Chuck. So far, the initial evidence is that people can certainly have chronic symptoms after breakthrough infections are fully vaccinated, um, but they don't seem to be the same symptoms and they don't seem to last quite as long and they don't seem as uh, common as if you got, you know, chronic symptoms after, if not vaccinated. So, um, you know, that's kind of where we are. And if you want a number, there are some studies saying that you you cut the risk by at least 50% uh, by getting immunized, if not more than 50%. So it's two times fewer odds of getting uh, chronic symptoms. And like I mentioned, they're not like the same kind of debilitating symptoms. It may be like loss of taste and smell for a few weeks rather than sort of like the brain fog and I can't really get myself out of bed to work. Daniel in Pomona says if if it ends up being the case that Omicron provides relatively mild symptoms of of COVID infection, you know, what would be the most non-ideal characteristics for a new variant? I think the most uh, 
or the scariest characteristics or superpowers for a new variant would be uh, you, you take the transmissibility of, say, Delta and what we suspect Omicron might be together with um, very, very much uh, vaccine evading properties, in which case um, you, you know, your current vaccines won't work and it causes you to be sicker. But I think many people believe that, and this is kind of coming back to the evolutionary perspective that maybe uh, SARS-CoV-2 is evolving to a way where, you know, it wants to live forever. So it's going to cause these mild cold-like symptoms. And at the end of the day, it will end up being like a cold, one of the, the slew of cold viruses we can get, not cause people to be really, really sick. Um, and, you know, combined with some mild some mild infection and vaccines, that hybrid immunity will kind of take you out for many years. And that would be because it wouldn't be in in uh, the virus's interest to kill the host? Yeah, I mean, the virus isn't thinking that way, but... No, I mean, certainly, it's not sentient, <laughs> I understand. No, 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 definitely. I mean, we always personify viruses, and I myself do that a lot. But it certainly is appearing... In the in, with this characteristic of of making the whatever circulating really really transmissible, and that's the the superpower that seems to be prized. Dr. Peter Chen Hong, always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. Have a terrific rest of the week, and I look forward to talking with you next week on Air Talk. Same here, Larry. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.